Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today I'm really excited to have with us Dr. Ben Stevenson. Ben is a physiologist with the Great Britain Paratriathlon team. He's also a research associate at Loughborough University based primarily in the Peter Harrison Centre for Disability Sport. So welcome to the podcast, Ben. Thanks for having me, Liz. Pleasure to be on. Oh, it's great to have you. Can you give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you came to work with Paratriathlon and at the Peter Harrison Centre? Yeah, to be honest, we were, it was both at the same time. So I started my undergrad at Loughborough University in 2011, which is scary to think of now. <laughs> and then it was in my final year of my undergrad, we actually had a, um, a special populations, so to speak, module that was led by Vicky Tolfrey. And as part of that, she was advertising or making aware of an opportunity for the following year for any prospective master's students on the exercise physiology master's. So there was a chance to uh, to have an internship with British Para Triathlon, mm. sort of in a in a sports science assistant type role. And I, I was lucky enough to to enrol onto the Exercise Physiology Masters um, and and to be offered that internship. And primarily through the 2014-2015 season, it was it was a bit of a a lab assistant helping out whenever the squad was in for any uh, lab based profiling. So it was probably three or four times a year the the athletes would come into Loughborough and we'd do profiling across swim, bike and run. And I was actually lucky enough from then, from that year, to to be offered a PhD with the sport. So part funded mm-hmm. by British Triathlon and Loughborough University as the sport was then going into about a year, uh, well, less than a year into Rio Paralympics, mm-hmm. the yep. sport's first ever Paralympic Games. And they had a ton of questions really around around the sport in general, around the physiology of the sport of their athletes and how to how to prepare longitudinally, how to prepare for for some specific challenges that the sport brings up. So yeah, I was I was lucky enough to then at the back end of 2015 to start a PhD with uh, British British Triathlon, working with a Para Triathlon program and with Professor Vicky Tolfrey at the Peter Harrison Centre at Loughborough University, and as somehow sticked around ever since then. So yeah, coming up to, mm-hmm. well, seven and a half, eight years in the Paralympic sport world with Peter Harrison Centre and with British Paratriathlon. So you are the guru in physiology with paratriathlon. It's a niche niche subject. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I'm trying to fill that void. Well, I'm sure when you started and they had a ton of questions, you went to the research and went, oh, hmm, well, that's not going to help me much. <laughs> yeah, there was... There was one case study from Inigo Moika that was yeah, a case study of a, a male PTS4 athlete and his training. So that got heavily cited in my, in my PhD thesis. <laughs> but uh, yeah, since then, there has been a few more papers come out, thankfully. But yeah, back when I started, it was the, it was the sole paper. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you about that. That's the main purpose of of our discussion. I actually, the last, not the last podcast, but the podcast before that was with Katie Kelly, who was a VI 
athlete in paratriathlon for Australia for 2016. She won the gold medal and also in 2021. So you're coming hot off the back of a discussion with a paratriathlete, so it's good timing. Um, So your PhD research was primarily focused around temperature regulation or for the technical term thermoregulation, correct? That's true, yes. Yeah, so as I was mentioning, like, the, the sport has obviously some very specific questions around just day to day, how do we how do we train for, for the sport? But also we're very cognizant of after the Rio, uh, yeah, after the Rio games were completed, the, the next big one was Tokyo. And that was a very, very different challenge, obviously, environmentally, not least the, the big the big time zone changes, at least from from Britain. But yeah, environmentally, that was that was a that was a real threat to performance. So mm-hmm. questions were asked very early into the Tokyo cycle. How, how do we prepare for this? How do we how do we make sure that athletes are on the start line and uh, their performance is not limited? How do we lessen the impact of of the heat of the very high humidity on athletes' performance? So we we set about tackling that with with my, some of my research in my PhD and then a lot of applied work since then. Mm-hmm. Mm. So can you give us a quick a quick rundown of thermoregulation and why it may be different in para-athletes compared to able-bodied athletes? I'll do my best. Um, <laughs> not sure anyone's ever given a quick rundown on thermoregulation, but I'll, <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go for the headlines. Um, ultimately, we as humans, any, any animals, we need, we need to expend energy for movement. Mm-hmm nothing comes for free we need to expend some form of uh, of energy that comes from us from fuel utilization and atb breakdown i think mm-hmm. ultimately the issue is that we are we're not efficient machines we are very yep. very inefficient so only probably somewhere between 15 and 20 percent of the energy that we expend goes to actual movement so a lot mm-hmm. of that then results in heat production and that, that heat production is it is proportional to the to the intensity of the work that we do so the amount of work that we produce or the amount of heat that we produce walking for argument's sake is uh, intuitively going to be a lot less than if we're sprinting or if we're cycling at 100 watts the amount of heat that's produced is going to be a lot less than cycling at 500 watts mm-hmm. But also the body doesn't really like change. The body likes to maintain the same internal environment. It likes to maintain homeostasis. Mm-hmm. So the body really wants to keep the same internal temperature. So regardless of how much heat we're producing, the body will attempt to keep it, its temperature within a relatively tight bandwidth. Mm-hmm. And for the most part, we are pretty good at maintaining that internal temperature. And we've got a lot of a lot of mechanisms, a lot of processes that uh, the body can use to maintain that temperature. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first and probably most powerful one is just behaviorally. So actually, as we are producing heat, as we are working hard, the the first, almost the first port of call the body will go to is tell us to slow down. Because ultimately, (laughs) as we say, the amount of heat that we produce is going to be proportional to the intensity that we're working at. And if we're the body sensing that we are getting too hot, that the internal temperature is swaying outside of that sort of normal bandwidth, mm-hmm. 
it will tell us mm -hmm. to slow down, lower the heat production, lower the temperature. But we've yeah. also got things uh, very primitive, like seeking shade whilst it's hot, mm -hmm. whilst we're hot, or actually we're hot, we can't seek shade, we can't slow down, let's cool ourselves, let's use cold water, let's use mm -hmm. fine fans, let's use stick our hands in ice, whatever it might be. So mm -hmm. the, we do have a very powerful behavioral thermoregular system, thermoregulatory mm -hmm. system to try and cool us down when, when body temperatures are increasing. But we do also have other heat loss mechanisms. So namely convection. So yep. when, uh, when the blood vessels under our skin dilate, we can send some of the heat or yeah, some of the heat from the internal or the center of the body flow through the periphery in the form mm -hmm. of, of the blood blood goes close to the skin surface and then as air flows over the skin surface heat can be lost through convection and then mm -hmm. on top of that probably a very well-known one is just evaporation of sweat as well so yep. being able to sweat and the evaporation that comes with that is again another very powerful means to to lower body temperature and those two are very yep. important obviously when when we can't use some of the more behavioral thermoregulatory thermoregulatory mechanisms such as slowing down if we're mm -hmm. in a race we can't we don't want to just slow down we want to more yeah. rely more on on losing heat without really thinking about it yeah and obviously this the, it becomes an issue our heat production can become an issue as as we are working hard as intensity is high but also uh, if the environment actually prohibits heat loss and actually makes it harder so if there isn't any air to flow over the skin and there's mm -hmm. no wind or if humidity is high and there isn't the, as much capability to evaporate sweat, mm -hmm. then temperatures can go up. And, and, hence honest, why to and hence why Tokyo was considered to be a higher risk scenario because of the high humidity. Exactly. The, the absolute air temperatures of Tokyo weren't anything ridiculous. They were probably somewhere between 30 and 35 degrees. That's probably no different to, to some days in Rio. The the main mm -hmm. difference was the high humidity, which mm -hmm. um, yeah, just makes it a lot harder to to evaporate sweat. It's the same reason why your clothes won't dry when they're in a, yep. a humid room or a moist room. It's the same same process. Um, mm -hmm. But fun fundamentally, all all those heat loss mechanisms or heat production mechanisms as well, they're all exacerbated with athletes with a disability. And that's that's where a lot of a lot of my work and a lot of my attention has been the last few years is actually being able to 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 look at this and to be able to profile this in the broad disabled athlete population. Yep. Um so the the probably the well definitely the most well researched and well uh, well understood population are athletes with spinal cord injury. Yep. And that in itself is a very heterogeneous population. It's very varied. There's no such thing as a, a spinal cord injury that's the same across every person. <laughs> we know that that's not the case. But there, there has been a lot of research and a lot of profiling done of, of athletes with a spinal cord injury and their um, their risk of femoregulatory strain, whether it's in a sports context or not. Mm -hmm. Uh, and and prim the, primarily sorry. because they've got a primarily because they're reduced uh, capacity to sweat. Yeah, exactly that. So yep. it's all all the um, all the responses, all the consequences of the impairments are 
proportional to the level of an athlete's lesion and mm -hmm. also the completeness. So athletes with a higher lesion, so up in uh, cervical region of, of the spine, those with tetraplegia and those mm -hmm. with complete lesions are going to have uh, greater impairments. So any complete lesions below that point, athletes or individuals in general will not be able to sweat, which we know is yeah. such a huge, huge mechanism for heat loss but also won't be able to to vasodilate and to, to almost open the blood vessels under the skin for more of the convective cooling as well. Uh -huh. um, yep. And there's, like I said, there's been a lot of research in athletes with a spinal cord injury. Mm -hmm. And some of the work by Katie Griggs, another um, former Peter Harrison Centre PhD student, her, her work has shown that even in in Tokyo type conditions, even at rest, athletes with tetraplegia or individuals with tetraplegia will show gradual increases in body temperature even without mm -hmm. any significant sort of metabolic heat production even without too much of that heat produced from movement just at rest yeah. so that was that would well it would probably would have been a concern if if tokyo had been open to, to spectators last summer mm -hmm. if anyone was traveling with with a high spinal cord lesion even resting outside in those type of conditions, there could have been a risk for, for elevations in body temperature. Yep. But on top of athletes with a spinal cord injury, the the almost the impairment doesn't stop there when it comes to thermoregulation. Yeah. Um, so I, I think probably the the one area where I've personally seen biggest the biggest risk really or biggest strain in an applied concept context is athletes with uh, a limb deficiency um, mm -hmm. and the biggest difference there is really a lower surface area so a lower surface area on the skin for sweat for sweating and the evaporative heat loss but mm -hmm. also lower surface area and lower skin area for more of the convective cooling like we know surface area is absolutely massive when it comes to heat loss and surface area to, to volume ratio. We know almost long, thin objects or long, thin shapes are really good for, for heat loss because they've got a big surface area to volume ratio. And if so you're like, missing... So like legs. Exactly. And if you're missing yep. one of those long, thin objects like an arm or a leg, mm -hmm. actually the the surface area loss is is massive mm -hmm. and athletes with a with a lower limb deficiency i think it's it's very much multiplied so if they're using prosthesis if they're wearing liners yeah that effectively even further or even greater reduces that surface area for heat loss because you're putting on a an, a, an eight mil thick liner over your residual yeah. limb that again although it's it's still there if the liner wasn't on it would be able to sweat and lose heat but you're covering it up yeah and on top of and, that and with something that's very impermeable and if anything actually generate creates more heat within that local environment itself yeah exactly it's going to trap in the heat and not to mention mm. all the sort of the the health and uh, well the skin health complications that can come from actually you're still sweating in there you're wearing your liner if you're in tokyo environment you've got it on for i don't know five hours a day for two weeks mm. and the sweat build up the almost the skin breakdown that can come with that but yeah it's just even strictly from a heat production perspective athletes with a with a low limb deficiency their their movement inefficiencies are yeah. even greater than mm -hmm. athletes with with two low limbs so 
if an athlete with two legs was running at let's say 15k an hour and an athlete with a uh, I don't know a below uh, a below knee amputation was running at 15k an hour more than likely the heat production would be significantly greater for the athlete with a low limb deficiency mm. Mm-hmm. So they'd be creating more heat, which is then mm-hmm. exacerbated when they have the lower capacity to then to then lose it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, some of the work that uh, I've I've seen more in an applied setting has probably shown that those athletes are potentially at greater risk than potentially some others, at least in a in a sport like triathlon. I think. And then I think the athletes with a spinal cord injury, athletes with a limb deficiency, it's it kind of it does make sense, but then if we go into athletes with neurological disorders, mm-hmm. it becomes very, very uh, varied and very, or even, even less studied in the academic perspective. Mm. I think probably the one one uh, one exception is MS, multiple sclerosis. There yep. seems to be a bit of research coming out again, not in a sports setting, more from a general population setting um, mm-hmm. that exposure to the heat can exacerbate some of the symptoms of ms mm. uh, so again that's it's a very it's a tough one to to try and manage in a in a sports setting manage that exposure to, to the heat in, in those in those athletes yeah and then obviously some of the more broader urological disorders so we know athletes with cerebral palsy will like some form of heat. We know that heat to a certain extent is good for tone and good for spasticity. Mm-hmm. But generally from what I've seen, and again, it's very anecdotal, almost the consequences of a too much heat are very exacerbated in that population uh, mm-hmm. and can be pretty marked when that, when that temperature almost goes a little bit higher than optimum for lowering tone and spasticity mm. and becomes uh, deteriorating almost the drop-off can be pretty marked mm. um, okay and also we've got athletes who potentially have brain injuries is there or there can probably be some some level of impairment when it comes to more of the behavioral thermal regulation whether that's almost understanding the the cues the body is giving in terms of the temperature it's sensing or whether mm. it's a misunderstanding of actually pace management and being able to pace an effort in the heat mm. um that's a is another consideration for for athletes with neurological impairment mm. um yeah and then the, the last cohort really for me is athletes with a uh, visual impairment or, yep. which physiologically are very similar to non-disabled athletes but mm-hmm. there are still potential differences again when it comes to behavioral thermoregulation so Actually, an athlete with a visual impairment potentially could lack the cues of understanding external workload and mm. understanding what is tolerable in in the heat. If they have a pacing strategy that's externally, or even say if it's a pacing strategy based on heart rate, but they don't have the ability to, to see what heart rate is or see what power mm. is, then actually yep. the that pace awareness can be can be removed. And equally. Yep. Another one pretty similar is is being able to see uh, the level of hydration or dehydration from urine mm. color as well, which is yep. it's a common cue for for athletes with full sight being able to see the level of uh, the color of urine. But if athletes mm-hmm. with visual impairment are missing that cue, again, it could lead to almost 
continued hypohydration and continued dehydration, which exacerbates heat stress. Yep. And, and then finally, in the in the the VI population, are athletes with albinism, which again yep. the 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 risks there come from exposure to to the sun more specifically rather than general heat and actually mm. the risk of sunburn is is huge in, mm. in that population and we know if anyone gets sunburn it's it's an almost instantaneous hit to the thermoregulatory system on a greater mm-hmm. challenge when it comes to sweat to sweating and evaporative heat loss as well as com- convective heat loss from from skin blood flow so if those athletes are at greater risk due to their impairment in, in sunny environments then mm-hmm. yeah it's it, it can be a real challenge for them competing in the heat wow wow that's that's a really thorough overview ben <laughs> i'm in, well impressed with that so i guess just give us some of the quick consequences of that elevated body temperature when it goes too high you know you've got competitive athletes they're not going to slow down because they're on a mission particularly at a paralympic games what's the potential consequence of the temperature going too high of the body so as as temperature goes up and when we're exercising specifically like i said we we know that the skin almost needs needs blood flow for convective heat loss it tries to almost act as that radiator to to lose heat at the at the surface really of our body so there is demand for blood there but also there's inherently demand for blood from our working muscles they need blood for oxygen supply, they need it for fuel supply, they need it for removal of various metabolites. Yep. So there comes a bit of a competition there. It's your muscles versus your skin, but also then we've mm. still got vital organs. Our oh, brains organs. just can't yeah, <laughs> our brains don't really like not having blood. So that it does become a bit of a yeah, a bit of a competition. And as we're sweating as well, we are slowly Sort of increase in the the viscosity and the the thickness of our blood as well, which again almost can slightly lower the overall volume there. So the, it comes mm. a demand, and ultimately something's got to compromise. So either our muscles basically compromise, and we don't get enough fuel, we don't get enough oxygen, and inevitably intensity has to go down. We slow down, yep. whether that's on a bike, whether it's swimming, whether it's running, whatever it might be. Either that or our skin is going to compromise and temperatures mm-hmm. are going to gradually increase and increase and brain can compromise and oxygen and blood to the brain is going to decrease and the same with uh, any of our other vital organs namely uh, liver kidney and as as that compromise starts setting we can really risk potential organ damage especially if we're taking taking oxygen away from from say the kidneys the liver the brain however it might be and and yeah like i said the the consequences of that are pretty severe so Mm. continued exposure to to those type of temperatures and that type of dehydration and that type of blood almost demand and compromise can lead to heat stroke and Mm. any of the various heat illness almost pathways from sort of heat illness and heat cramps all the way to through to heat stroke which ultimately can can be life-threatening mm. yep okay so it can be pretty dire but at the at the very least it's going to impact on performance capability full stop 
And it's not just a matter of throwing fluid at it and maintaining hydration. I think, you know, a lot of people in sport go, oh, well, if I drink enough, I should be fine. Or if I pour water over my head, they're all temporary fixes. And yes, staying hydrated will help to a degree because it helps to continue the blood flow and, and potentially the sweat rate. But they're, they're, for some people, that actually is, is counterproductive. Yeah, yeah. I think ultimately it, when the body's temperature is increasing and we are almost on that, on that pathway and on that journey towards potential heat illness uh, and the very severe consequences that come with that, we, we need to lower the body temperature, not just make the body think it's cooler, um, mm. which is the risk that can come with some of the more, probably more tepid or less less severe cooling strategies so like i said the example of throwing water over your face perceptually that's going to feel really good for mm-hmm. maybe a minute if you're lucky we have a lot of thermoreceptors a lot of temperature sensors in and around the face that are going to be activated as soon as you as soon as you throw water over your face but actually that's doing nothing to to drive down overall body temperature the temperature yep yeah, and it's just a similar example is something like like menthol. So menthol stimulates again thermoreceptors and cold receptors. Whether you apply it on the skin, whether you drink it, it's the same with certain types of of chewing gum you can buy you can, or toothpaste. You, you can mm-hmm. feel a cool sensation, but ultimately, it, it all it's doing is tricking these the cold receptors on the skin, in the mouth, wherever it might be, into thinking that there's there's a cooling going on, when in reality, it's not. It's, the temperature mm. is exactly the same. You've just been tricked. Yeah. Okay. So can we talk a little bit about the research that you did on... You, you went to Italy two years in a row and you took some data on uh, some international paratriathletes who were racing in Italy can we talk a little bit about that and the main outcome of that study? Can you just run us through like some of the key findings and what you found was surprising about that? Yeah, yeah, that was that was quite a neat study actually. So yeah, like you said, we we went to Italy, a place called Isio, a couple of years in a row. So 2017, 2018, and I think the first time we went, it potentially might have we potentially might have just collected data from a few of the british guys and then the following year we we got a lot of support from the itu now world triathlon to actually open open it out and to help us help us uh, contact the the wider fields and international athletes to try and get a more uh, well a broader range of, of athletes and impairments and they were really supportive and and bought into trying to hear what the results of the study were so in the end, we we collected data from 28 athletes across mm. all the paratriathlon categories, yep. um, and we really wanted to try and profile the the thermoregulatory responses to to competition in the heat. Mm-hmm. Um, and we 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 kind of knew what to expect from an environmental perspective. The race had been there a few years prior to it prior to 2017 and generally was pretty hot each time um, mm-hmm. and we were really lucky like the buff both years we went it was pretty much exactly the same temperature it was about 33 degrees mm-hmm. evening race 
so it's perfect opportunity really to to profile what happens to elite paratriathletes without any intervention when they are competing in a hot environment. Mm. So the athletes were asked to, to take a core temperature pill about six hours before the race. Mm-hmm. Again, being an afternoon race, that, that made it really feasible. So yeah. the athletes would, would swallow the pill and then basically compete as they would do normally, do the same warm-up, no pacing strategy, no, no instruction from myself or any of the other experimental team would simply then as soon as they finished would report to, to myself or one of the other investigators and then we could wirelessly download the their core temperature profile really in a matter of minutes um, mm. and athletes also were then asked to to self-report any symptoms of heat illness after the race so things like fainting things like cramps chills really severe things like stopping sweating so mm-hmm. actually some of the symptoms outside of the normal sort of fatigue and exhaustion that you're going to get at the end of uh, end of a, I don't know, an hour, 75 minute race. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So really quite simple study in some respects, but some really interesting findings. So mm. overall, we saw probably a pretty expected increase of core temperature over the course of the race which is roughly what you'd expect by the time you finish a race, you've been, like I say, you've been exercising a pretty high intensity for probably, I think the range was somewhere between 55 minutes for the quickest athlete up to about, I think it's about hundred minutes really for the slowest athlete. Mm-hmm. So not massive, massive surprise to see temperature goes up over the course of the race. But what was quite interesting really was that almost a profile of that increase. Mm-hmm. So we saw, a relatively relatively large jump up in temperature over the course of a swim. So paratriathlon sprint distance events, 750 meter swim. Um, mm-hmm. So again, the range there, I think was maybe between nine and 18 minutes. But we did see probably just under a degree increase in core temperature over that period. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And then actually once athletes were on the bike, we generally saw a bit of a plateau. So. Mm-hmm. The, the amount of the well yeah the amount of convective cooling that comes from cycling at probably up to 40k an hour in some athletes was yeah. significant enough to, to at least maintain temperature um, mm-hmm. and then actually when athletes get onto the run we saw a big spike in temperature again which mm-hmm. again isn't isn't hugely surprising the, the level of heat production that comes with running especially running a relatively high intensity for 5k mm-hmm. it is quite significant that that was the overall trend but then we well, we also had the capability to almost dig into it and break it down by by classification and by rough impairment group so mm-hmm. and, and that's where some of the the nuances showed and come in so actually for the for the ptwc the wheelchair users we did see a slightly different profile so same response in the swim, increase of temperature, probably just under a degree. But then also yeah. once athletes run in the bike section, so for them in the handbike, temperature still continues to go up. And athlete, mm. actually athletes peak temperature in the PTWC class was at the end of the bike. Mm. On average, it was probably close to about 40 degrees. Wow. And it, that that is a very different that you, you don't see that in any of the literature from, from non-disabled triathlon. But it, again, it's, it is quite intuitive. 
um, mm-hmm. when you think about what what it looks like for for those athletes actually the they do have a smaller frontal area when they're in a the handbike if you've mm-hmm. ever stood in front of one like the the surface area is tiny yeah but also they're the line down on it so almost the, half the body at least or probably uh, just under half the body you can't lose sweat through through evaporation or it's very limited at least because you're you're lying down on your bike mm-hmm. it's also the category that probably has the greatest femoregulatory impairment more than mm-hmm. not it's going to be in this category that we get athletes with a spinal cord injury so again yep. it makes sense that there's there's a exacerbated core temperature increase there mm-hmm. but also athletes are athletes are closer to the road surface so yep. again if you've ever sat in a hand bike you realize you're you're only about 20 centimeters off the floor and yeah. if we're looking at afternoon races which they were the level of radiant heat that will come off the tarmac when you're lying pretty much 20 centimeters off it for in those guys half an hour 35 minutes you're gonna yep. you're gonna pick up more heat yeah exactly yep. and also probably the uh, another consideration is just the pacing element as well for those guys they know that the the run section in the racing wheelchair is significantly quicker so mm-hmm. it can be probably closer to 12 13 minutes for the quicker male athletes so mm-hmm. a potential pacing element where they are able to potentially put in some more effort yeah so yeah that that was a real interesting almost nuance and like category specific or impairment specific profile that we saw mm. and yeah like for the, the more ambulant athletes we're seeing big big spikes in temperature and peak core temperatures at the end of the run or very close to the end of the run whereas Mm -hmm. yeah for the for the ptwc athletes it was definitely at the end of the bike um but then yeah i think just the overall absolute temperatures that we saw were were quite in some ways impressive in some ways quite shocking or quite alarming Especially when mm-hmm. we compare it to, to previous literature in non-disabled events, and there's been quite a little, well, quite a bit of last few years profiling temperature responses in athletics, in cycling. There's been a few in non-disabled triathlon. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of the 28 athletes, we had 26 of them that had a core temperature peak above 39 degrees. Um, mm. 22 of the 28 were above 39.5 which for most, um, at least in the UK, I think most lab studies or most university studies, their ethical cutoff will probably be around 39 and a half degrees before they have to terminate trials. Whereas we're seeing 22 of 28 athletes reach that in competition. But then the, the, the probably the greatest surprise came from the fact that eight of the 28 had core temperature peaks of 40 degrees or higher which is mm. in and around where most people would would say that that's a almost a symptom or a sign of heat illness um mm. so yeah really uh hit home the level of thermoregulatory strain that athletes are putting themselves into it when competing in a, an event such as paratriathlon in the heat yeah yeah that's incredible like the 40 degrees and above is it's pretty high temperature as you say most labs would cut that off at 39.5 certainly even years ago when i did a master's study with temperature regulation our cutoff was 39.5 i'm just 
while you keep talking, I'm going to do a quick conversion to Fahrenheit for the Americans <laughs> <laughs> um, so that they they can understand those numbers. So keep keep sort of talking about the the surprising outcomes that that you found. I guess one of the questions I had, you know, the the influence of the wetsuit in the swim. It's a 750 meter swim, but with paratriathlon, or at least at that point in time, the, what was the water temperature and were they wearing wetsuits? Yeah, so that was another element that that we wanted to try and look at. So at the time, back well, yeah, back in 2018 and definitely in 2017, the IT regulations permitted wetsuit use in paratriathlon up to a water temperature of 28 degrees, mm-hmm. which anyone who's ever put their hand in 28 degree water will think that's pretty warm. Pretty warm. It's like, yeah. It's like a bath. Um, yeah. <laughs> So it it was quite yeah it was quite baffling at the time that 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 was permitted and the races that we did or the the races that we were at out in in Isio, the uh, the water temperature is around twenty six degrees mm-hmm. uh, for back in twenty seventeen and twenty eighteen so athletes were obviously well within the range of of legal wetsuit use mm-hmm. and for the most part athletes did elect to to wear a wetsuit. So we actually had the capability to to compare and contrast the the temperature responses from athletes who did and didn't wear a wetsuit. Uh, And the difference in temperature increase, especially in the swim, and even almost immediately pre-race, because generally athletes were putting the wetsuits on maybe half an hour before the start of the Mm -hmm. race. The, The start process probably wasn't the most, wasn't the smoothest athletes potentially waiting outside in the heat or at least waiting in the water in a wetsuit mm-hmm. for some time before the race even began mm-hmm. um so yeah like i said we, ha- we had the chance to to see the temperature differences and it was probably about or it was close to about half a degree difference on average by the end mm-hmm. of the swim in athletes who did and didn't wear a wetsuit and on top of that we we looked like I said, we, we collected information on which athletes were were showing symptoms of heat illness post-race. And mm-hmm. again, it's, it's not the most most robust method. Uh, like I say, it was very much self-reported symptoms. We're, we're not verifying this in any way, shape or form. But generally, athletes who were symptomatic did have a higher temperature throughout the race. But the big, pro, uh, big proportion of the athletes who were symptomatic for the heat illness also wear a wet wore a wetsuit mm. um, so yeah it was a that was a very interesting and again quite impactful finding from 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 the study and mm. that was that was something that in to, in fairness to them and to give them credit the ITU did act upon so very quickly off the back of off the back of the information the the ITU changed the wetsuit temperature cut off in uh-huh. paratriathlon so yep. it moved down quite significantly from 28 degrees to 24.6 degrees, I think it is now. So a sizable reduction. Mm. And funny enough that there's been a few races since then that have been what are now were now considered non-wetsuit races. And funny enough, no one no one drowned as a result of not wearing a wetsuit. So. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it probably could have been lower than 28 degrees from the start. Yeah. 
Well, you might have had a few complaints about um, them not swinging as fast without their wetsuit, but but at least no one drowned. (laughs) So I've just done that conversion. So 37 degrees uh, Celsius is 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit, and that's kind of considered to be, I guess, what you call relatively normal body temperature. The 39.5 degrees is 103 degrees Fahrenheit. And then the 40 degrees Celsius is over 104 degrees Fahrenheit. So for the US sort of people, they've got a little bit of a concept now in terms of what that temperature looks like. So Ben, I've got so many questions and so many other things. I did want to talk to you about um, the work that you've been doing on heat acclimation, but we've already spent quite a bit of time talking. So I guess Let's just, uh, maybe we'll leave that to another podcast. <laughs> what I'd like to do is get your thoughts on just the, the learnings from that, the precautions that you then took into Tokyo, um, not giving away too many big secrets, obviously, but, you know, just what are some of the strategies that athletes can use to keep their, to, to manage their body temperature, to be aware of their body temperature change and to look after themselves and protect their performance, but also their health moving forward in in when competing in hot conditions. Yeah, I know we don't have too much time to to chat about it today. Uh, I think I've probably been waffling on a little bit too much. But the, the biggest one is is heat acclimation. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I think it is quite quite quick and it's quite simple. Ultimately, it's yeah. There's not a lot of research out there, if any, in Paralympic athletes, but. There's absolutely no reason why a Paralympic athlete should not be heat acclimating. The, the the responses might not be complete in a small section of the Paralympic athlete cohort, but ultimately everyone is going to benefit if it's managed properly. Uh, and for me, like, we know in like it, well, it's been it's been known for a long time really that the most effective and best preventative strategy for competition in the heat is is proper heat acclimation. So it's making sure that you are you're stepping on the start line as heat acclimated uh, or heat acclimatized as possible. And generally, from my experience, it does take time to learn how to do that. And I think some of that is logistical. Some of that is managing managing train loads, managing uh, almost energy availability and uh, resource across a heat acclimation block because it's hard. Mm-hmm. But I also think there is probably some element of a cumulative effect of actually year on year almost being exposed to that type of intervention does seem to i think lead to sort of accumulative uh accumulated benefits mm. that that's okay. fundamentally the the best preventative strategy for competition in the heat after that i would say probably exposure to the environment and learning a pacing strategy so mm-hmm. for us being able to go go out to the test events well, eventually it was two years <laughs> two before years the game. Before. Yeah. But exposure to the environment and again in Parachalflon test event, not only was it two years before, it was a duathlon. They cut the, because of, yeah, I was gonna yeah. say they cut the swim. <laughs> um so uh, it wasn't exactly well, it wasn't anywhere close to like for like. But mm-hmm. exposure to even at races such a, as ICO and understanding what racing and doing your event in the heat feels like is absolutely mm-hmm. massive. And if, if you can't get to too many hot events, I think it's being creative and doing it in a home environment, whether that's heat chambers or something similar. But ultimately, mm-hmm. yeah, just learning 
learning what it likes to do your event in in the heat and mm. almost having that internal calibration of what temperature feels like and what uh what effort feels like in terms of workload and what is sustainable i think on top of that probably the third one would be appropriate fueling and hydration um mm -hmm. ultimately we know sweat responses at least in most populations are going to increase in the heat so being able to match that for fluid intake both pre-event but also during the event is huge maintaining mm -hmm. that the amount of fluid in the blood being able to maintain that blood volume so that we can almost yeah there is there is more radiator fluid so to speak in the system yeah. and there's yep. almost lesser lessening that that demand but also fueling as well like we know competition in the heat and exercise in the heat is going to increase carbohydrate utilization and um, so being able to match that and prepare for that and then i think the icing on the cake really is making sure you've got appropriate pre and mid event cooling strategy so mm -hmm. again there's a lot of research out there as to what are the most effective cooling strategies pre and during events so and uh, some of them aren't feasible depending on what the competition is some of them are so ideal world you'd be doing cold water immersion immediately pre-race that seems to be the most aggressive and most most impactful cooling strategy and then during your event again probably looking at how what can we do whether it's internal cooling via cold fluids or ice slurries mm -hmm. or wearing ice vests if possible can we use sort of cold towels ice towels whatever it might be and really just putting that icing on the cake but for me it starts with properly preparing through acclimation exposure to the environment and proper fueling and hydration Okay, and so what you mean by proper heat acclimation, we're talking about a structured training process in hot conditions that is part of the training protocol and the and it takes a, a few weeks? Yeah, fundamentally heat acclimation comes from elevating body temperature, so elevating core temperature, elevating skin temperature, increasing sweat mm -hmm. rate, I probably wouldn't get too hung up as to what the exact numbers are, but making sure that all those are driven up. So elevating yeah. them regularly enough. So generally at least probably every other day yep. and for a long enough period. So again, probably a minimum you can get away with if it's consecutive days, at least is probably five days, but probably still seeing at least in some people full acclimation might take three weeks. Yep. So it is it is tough. There's there's no, there's no getting away from that, mm. and that's why I think there's been a lot of or a lot more attention paid to actually when when you heat acclimate relative to competition. So because of the demand of actually raising body temperatures pretty regularly for at least probably a week or two, people have started moving that that the bulk of the work a little bit earlier. Um, so there mm -hmm. is some recovery off the back of that before competition because once the once the body is heat acclimated it it is a lot easier to maintain that adaptation maintain it. Yep. than it is mm -hmm. to, to almost kick start that process so mm -hmm. once once fully acclimated whatever that looks like generally you can probably get away with a session maybe every three four or five days as opposed to mm -hmm. potentially every day or every other day and mm -hmm. that generally seems to be able to to maintain that adaptation for probably a couple of weeks at least following a like say a session maybe once or twice a week okay and that's really for people who aren't 
already living and training in in a warm in in a hot environment anyway because they'd be already heat acclimated simply by virtue of where they live and where they train yeah yeah and i think look at well i say luckily it's not too lucky at sometimes but we've we don't have that sort of conundrum in the uk we (laughs) we physically can't get heat acclimated even in the peak of summer but it, it it is a it's a tricky situation at times because i think probably can become a little bit overlooked or maybe even yeah under underappreciated almost the level of yeah the level of body temperature increases that it needs to you need to have to to acclimate and i think ultimately for me that comes to increasing skin temperature which i think when you're in a heat chamber and there's no airflow and you set the temperature somewhere between 30 and 40 degrees is easy to achieve whereas yep even if it's say 35 degrees out on the gold coast if you're out on your bike the probably the level of yeah the probably level of airflow that you're going to get from cycling at i don't know 35k an hour means that skin temperature is probably not going to be that high Uh, core temperature might be increased and we like say we saw that in the the data that we collected in paratriathlon actually Mm -hmm. you can probably maintain a uh, maintain core temperature rather than increase it when you're when you're cycling even at a pretty high intensity Whereas mm-hmm. I think if you're at least even if you're just static outside, you put a turbo turbo trainer outside and it's thirty five degrees, you probably will get that level of overall body temperature, temperature not just mm-hmm. core temperature increase. Whereas yeah, I think mm. at least probably from a cycling perspective, um, I know that's only just one modality out of many, but yeah, the the level of wind flow that you can get from even when it's it's pretty hot air temperature probably means that your your skin temperature doesn't get probably high enough to to drive that adaptation mm. wow um yeah blown away um, <laughs> i'm i'm like where do i go now so then i think i've taken up enough of your time for today but i do want to come back and talk to you another time because i'd like to know what you're working on now that was one of my questions was what are you working on now we're not expecting paris to be quite as hot or definitely not as humid as as tokyo maybe it will be hot because it's summertime and paris can still get hot but not the humidity so much so i think it's a constant thing you've always you know you're working with a summer sport and they're likely to have conditions that they're competing in at world championships or world cups that are still very hot so it's it's an ongoing endeavor to learn more about so let's finish off with what are some key recommendations that you give to athletes and their coaches in regards to managing heat or at least understanding the impact that heat has on their performance even outside of paratriathlon yeah good question um i think for me it's it is exposure to the environment and learning what it feels like if you let's let's take a hypothetical example that you've got again i'll refer back to power triathlon because it's about all i know (laughs) got power triathlete who is looking at the world champs uh this year which for anyone doesn't know are in abu dhabi they are Mm -hmm. in november so it's it's obviously not the not the peak of summer but there is potential Mm -hmm. to to be pretty hot um, depending on when the races start and if it's his or her first ever exposure to to a hot race yeah for me you can't really go into a can't go into it at least expecting any type of good result without exposure to that 
type of environment in the first place. Mm -hmm. So it's looking at opportunities where you can go and work at uh, race intensity or uh, meet the demands of your event, whether it's power equestrian or power archery, actually exposure to the type of environment that you're going to be competing in and just mm -hmm. learning, learning how you respond, learning what is tolerable, because ultimately, yeah, by the time you get into the competition, it's it's too late, you, you can't mm -hmm. change anything then. So it's mm -hmm. exposure to that environment. For some people, it, it might actually be tolerable. You might not have to worry if you're potentially an athlete with CP and uh, the environment at least isn't too challenging, then you might absolutely be loving life because tone and spasticity mm. is a lot lower. But fundamentally, you won't know until you've experienced it. Yeah. But then once you have, then you can start to, to appreciate what what is needed. Is a full heat acclimation protocol needed because the level of yeah the environmental temperature is so severe and the intensity working at is so severe that not only is performance at risk but potential health consequences as well mm -hmm. but also actually what cooling strategies are feasible like mm -hmm. say we we say something like cold water immersion is the most effective but actually what are the practicalities of that in the competition mm -hmm. so yeah not many people have access to an ice bath just before the start line <laughs> exactly exactly so yeah fundamentally if, you, if you're not exposed to to the the environment that you're going to be competing in yeah you, you're missing a real opportunity to learn and to to explore whether it's mm -hmm. like say acclimation whether it's cooling whether it's hydration whether it's fueling so, yeah, whether it's simply finding shade when, you know, the, those behavioural issues or not issues, but the behavioural components of avoiding excess heat exposure. I think that's something that athletes, particularly in a new environment, don't think about a lot and yeah. they get caught up in the the excitement and, and the whole atmosphere and, and almost forget about those behavioural strategies that will help protect them. Yeah, and another another example of behavioural strategies is something like what you wear as well. Mm -hmm. um, so take, a, again, a cycling or paratriathlon example. Actually, aero helmets are probably great for uh, for aerodynamics and speed on the bike, but actually they're probably not, well, they aren't the most ventilated and head temperature mm -hmm. and face temperature is going to increase. Um, or the wetsuit example again. So yeah, even just what you're wearing in competition is is a big big consideration. Fantastic. Well, thank you, Ben. It's been phenomenal. I've learnt heaps, and I thought I already knew a fair bit. So <laughs> you're always still learning. My last question to you is something a bit more personal. So, what's your favourite food? <laughs> Pizza. <laughs> Any particular topping? Pepperoni and a significant amount of cheese. <laughs> so you would have been <laughs> so you would have had a fantastic time in Italy for those two times that you went over to collect that data. Pizza yeah. every night. It's the only reason I chose that race, really. <laughs> fantastic. Well, Ben, thank you so much for your time, your knowledge, your expertise, and all the work that you continue to be doing. I look forward to hearing a bit more from you, and and we'll come back and talk to you another time. But thanks again for your time. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you. Ben's given a really comprehensive overview of the influence that heat can have on performance and health in athletes and why so many para-athletes may be at higher risk of developing heat-related issues. 
not just those with spinal cord injuries, which is where most of the research lies. I think his main points are really practical in terms of knowing how heat impacts on you as an athlete and looking at opportunities to acclimatise to hot conditions if you know you're going to be competing in the heat. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please provide any feedback on our website and any recommendations of people you'd like to hear from. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Noah Elliott, a para-snowboarder.